0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Monanan, Kinway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, the French buccaneers, led by Pierre Le Picard and Mathurin de Marais, were marching across Central America. Ravneau de Lausanne, a crewman and writer, inserted himself into all of the most dashing exploits, and he might actually have been involved in some of them. The pirates fought off ambush after ambush from the Spanish. They carried packs full of silver and gold and emeralds and pearls and even a few rubies and diamonds. They marched through woods and over savannas, and they died. Only one or two here, one or two there, but they were dying. The Spanish were picking them off, slowly, but every day there was another ambush or two and it had been ten days since they set out on 2nd January, 1688. That's ten days of roughly four leagues a day, that is, 14 miles or 22 kilometers. And that's not an unsubstantial hike, considering the constant and pending danger, the actual fighting they had to endure, and the campaign of fear conducted by the Spanish. The way that the Spaniards blared their trumpets all day and night the threatening letters they sent, and, you know, the actual killing. There was the campaign of fear and the violence, but on top of all of that, the pirates were suffering from hunger. Originally, they had intended to eat off the land. Luson had written previously, quote, Before I leave these seas, I'll spare the reader the trouble of asking how we came to endure so much hunger, misery, and fatigue. I have said that the country is so good and pleasant and fruitful in the production of all things necessary for the support and comfort of human life. He goes on to tell us that the pirates might, quote, surprise the Spanish, in our descents, where we would have wanted nothing, not only that was necessary, but also pleasurable, besides the wealth we must have carried away in a short time. But he concludes, quote, in sight of the Spaniards, who, discovering even the least motions we made, had almost always time to remove all of their effects out of the way before we made our descent, and left us nothing they could not carry away." End quote. All along this march the Spanish were taking the time to strip every settlement and outpost of anything that the pirates could use, the food and the water, and, of course, the shelter. The Spanish took the time to herd any cattle away that the pirates might eat, and they bought this time in pirate blood by blocking their pathways and burning savannah grass. In short, the Spanish plan was working. The pirates were dropping off, slowly, but dropping off nonetheless. But then, on 11th January 1688, the city of Segovia appeared in the distance. This is episode 142. Unexpected Morning Music. When I picture this scene, Segovia, I imagine the pirates topping a rise to see a moderate town at the bottom of the hill. A town with a wall surrounding it, but more of a fence than a proper fortification, although made of stone. Segovia lies in a valley. I picture it kind of like an amphitheater with a river running through the center. The hill on which the pirates were standing stood in front of the town. On either side there were two larger pine-covered hills, and then behind the city, a mountain range. The mountain range is where the pirates were headed, but before they could get there, those two pine-covered hills on either side of the town just happened to have excellent lines of sight on the approach to Segovia. The pirates knew that the approach to the city would be difficult. They knew that they would be fired upon from within that pine tree cover. As soon as they started their descent, a volley of musket shot fired on them. It wasn't a devastating salvo, but it did hit two men. However, the pirates were prepared for this. Each of their five separate divisions had a sector to watch, an area of ground and tree cover that they were to keep an eye on. They had orders to open up on any location from where shots were fired, which wasn't tremendously difficult. Old-fashioned muskets tend to produce a lot of smoke. So the pirates were able to fire roughly on the location from where they were being shot, and that forced the Spanish to move before they could open fire again. This pattern continued for nearly an hour of a slow-moving firefight, but eventually the pirates reached Segovia proper. Now, last time, I told you the pirates were crossing through Costa Rica, and that's what Ravno de Luzon tells us over and over again. But that should serve as an excellent lesson in why we should never trust scurvy, lying pirates, or old historical sources. The pirates weren't in Costa Rica at all, so sorry about that. The coast of Central America, the Pacific coast of Central America, was called Costa Rica at the time, but the pirates were in fact in northwest Nicaragua, very near the border with Honduras. I should have picked up on that much earlier, such as when the pirates took that small town called Coluteca in Honduras, or when the pirates scuttled their ships in the Gulf of Fonseca, on the coast of Nicaragua. This whole region nueva segovia was lightly populated by the spanish in 1688 there were a ton of nicaraguan natives living there but the city itself segovia was only there because of the gold deposits that were found in the coluteca river that ran near town today the city of nueva segovia is called ocotal which is a native nicaraguan name for the region But if you take a look at this region on a map, you'll notice a few things. The first thing I noticed is that these pirates' route across Nicaragua ran somewhat parallel to Henry Morgan's route some 22 years earlier. They were to the north of Grenada and Lake Nicaragua. But looking at that map, we can guess the trajectory of these pirates. When we look at where they made landfall and where they are now at Segovia, it looks very much like they're headed for Cabo Gracias a Dios. You may remember that location in northeast Nicaragua. It's the very same place that another French buccaneer maybe the forefather of these pirates, a place where he met his grisly end as the main course for a group of cannibals. Francois Lallonet was executed and then eaten for his crimes against the native peoples in the region into which these pirates were headed. And you might be wondering, well, then where are all of these native peoples? Well, there weren't many of them in Segovia, a Spanish stronghold, but they are going to play a role. These buccaneers weren't much more sensitive than Loloñay had been. But back to Segovia. Pierre de Picard and Mathurin de Moray expected stout resistance when they arrived at the town. They expected barricades and pike formations and snipers in every window. They expected cannons and cavalry units, everything that it would take to defend this city. Ravneau de Lussan tells us of Segovia, quote, This town lies in a bottom and is so surrounded with mountains that she looks as if she were laid up in prison. The churches are here but very indifferently built, and the place of arms is both considerable and very fine. It was a city, a rich, gold-rich city, with fine architecture, even if he says they are indifferently built, exactly the sort of place that the Spanish traditionally would pull out all the stops to defend. But there wasn't an attack when the pirates came into town. There were no barricades, there were no pike formations, there weren't cannons or horses, there was nothing the city appeared very much to be empty. The only person that the pirates saw was one old man that the pirates very nearly stumbled over. Segovia had been abandoned. However, even though all of the people were gone, their food and drink was not gone, as it had been everywhere else. There were plenty of supplies there in town, on which the pirates, the hungry pirates, could have feasted. Not only was there food, there was ale and wine and rum, and even a good bit of treasure lying around. That's kind of a pirate dream. Nobody to try and kill them, but plenty of gold and silver. They could build a few roaring fires and roast some pork and duckling and wash it all down with a fine Spanish wine. I mean, really, that's kind of my dream, too. As the pirates passed through town, they saw these goods and this food through nearly every window. A few of the pirates wanted to go indulge. It was all inviting, after all. I mean, all that was missing were a few willing ladies to pass the time. But what do you imagine would have happened if the pirates had, in fact, indulged? The pirates would split up to go find treasure in every corner of town. And sure, they would be careful with their guns primed, waiting for an ambush. But then they would come across their stores of gold and jewels. And of course they would take that because they're pirates. But that would take up room in their packs, room that was currently occupied by shot and powder. And no attack would come. The pirates were just so terrifying, the Spanish couldn't even face them. And once they were feeling all safe and secure and rich, they would build those fires, they would eat those feasts, and they would toast, over and over again, the cowardice of the Spanish dogs who left all of this behind. Frankly, I'm a bit surprised that the Spanish didn't, accidentally, leave a few of the pretty native girls and slaves behind. You know, purely by accident just overlooked the half-dressed young women lying invitingly on piles of silver. Oops. Lusanne and the commanders of the pirates figured out pretty quickly that there was a plan in place here, a trap into which the pirates were meant to fall. Lull them into security, fill them with drink and food, and let them drift away by the fire that's when you send in a few hundred troops to execute them. So the commanders gave orders not to leave the column. They reprimanded any man who thought about slipping away to fill his pockets, and they did so harshly. Remember, pirate discipline was a delicate thing. But the pirates marched through Segovia without breaking ranks, even if there was a fair amount of grumbling. And I can understand that grumbling, Who would want to leave all of that behind when they were faced with sheer, steep mountains? Lusanne writes, The way is very difficult, being mountains of a prodigious height, to the tops whereof we must creep with great danger. The valleys, consequently, are so narrow here that for a league of even ground you have six leagues of mountains to go. We felt a very sharp cold, and were taken with so thick a fog that even when day appeared we could not know one another otherwise than by our voices. That lasted till ten in the morning, when the weather cleared up and the fog went entirely off, and the heat becomes very great. Thus we were forced to endure such contrary seasons, but the hopes of getting once into our native country made us endure all these toils, and served as wings to carry us. End quote. The mountains were daunting, and unpleasant compared to what Segovia offered, but the commanders got their men moving regardless, which was, considering what waited them, probably a very good thing. And they gained a march on the Spanish, which was the pirates' goal, but the Spanish were ready for that too. Upon entering the mountains, they faced a barricade of tree trunks that blocked their passage through the valley, and that took the better part of a day to break through. This gave the Spanish plenty of time to send a company ahead to cut off the pirates and begin making mischief. Come nightfall, the pirates made camp at a hatto there in the valley, at the foot of a very tall mountain, the first real mountain they'd encountered. The Spanish fired into the camp throughout the night, so the pirates had to dig little trenches to sleep in, and they slept without fire, but even still, during the night a few pirates were hit. The following day, the pirates made their first ascent, their first real climb, and it was slow going. There was the climbing, but they also spotted a herd of wild horses, which they spent time to hunt. But eventually they came to an eminence, a large flat spot near the top of a mountain. It was defensible against the Spanish, which was good, but it also gave them some much needed intel. Unfortunately, the intelligence was not good. There was a valley in front of them, and then, climbing the next rise, there were Spanish emplacements. Quote, on the thirteenth, an hour before sunrising, we mounted along an eminence that seemed to us to be an advantageous place to encamp on. From thence we sat upon the edge of a mountain. We sent forty men hither, who had observed three retrenchments in the same place all about pistol-shot from one another, which, rising by degrees towards the middle of the same side of the mountain, fully barricaded the way through which we were to pass next day, and commanded a small stream that ran along the said valley, into which we must necessarily descend first, there being no other way. Ten thousand men could not force their way through that entrenchment without being cut to pieces, as well because of the advantage of the place as the number of Spaniards that defended it. They saw also a man who, as soon as he saw them, severely threatened them with his cutlass, which he held naked in his hand. End quote. Now, I don't know that I believe ten thousand men would be unable to take it, but it's not impossible. The pirates despaired. Lusson continues, quote, These sad tidings were a mighty allay to our joy. But these thoughts were at once to be laid aside to make room for to consider how we should disentangle ourselves from that place without delay, because the Spaniards who were gathering together from all adjacent provinces would quickly fall upon our small company. End quote. The Spanish had a well defended entrenchment, looking downhill as the pirates would be coming up. It was complete with barricades and ditches that would leave anyone trying to climb the mountain open to attack, and there were hundreds of soldiers waiting for them, and more were arriving every day in alarmingly large numbers. There was no way to pass around it. There was a sheer cliff on one side, a stream, and a dense wood on the other. And even if they did manage to get the entire pirate army around the Spanish, what then? There would still be a Spanish army on their tail, growing larger every day. Luzon writes, quote, And though, after all, we should have found out a way to escape across so many obstacles, there was still an indispensable necessity that we should fight with the Spaniards, that we might be at quiet for the rest of our journey. End quote. Most of them were for making a stand here, for fighting it out with the Spanish in a final bid to decide their fate. Lucan describes the admittedly brave, if foolish, French buccaneers falling into despair, but finding resolve in this last, desperate act of defiance against the Spanish. And that sort of thing, well, it's almost a heroic cliché. You know, the charge of the Light Brigade, the 300 Spartans holding the Persians back at the Battle of Thermopylae, or Helm's Deep. You know, if this is to be our end, then I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance. But, if that's the way this were to go, I wouldn't be telling this story. This story would not be remembered beyond a few soldiers doing their job. Luzon, and Picard, and Desmarais, and all of the rest of the pirates would have died here. And we would know virtually nothing of their exploits after Guayaquil. Except as, maybe, a footnote in some dusty Spanish record book. And the Spanish did keep good records, but there's no story there, just, here's some pirates and here they died. Happily for us, though, that's not how this story went. Lusanne tells us that it was his input that changed the men's minds, an impassioned speech to put some steel in their bellies, that kind of thing. But I think it would be better described, if it were even in fact Lusanne who did so, as talking sense into the pirates. How about, rather than charge into a hail of deadly musket shot which will kill us all, how about we at least give sneaking around them a try? Not all of us, and we might all die in the end anyway, but how would that be different from one last glorious charge? Except in that we might not all die. If we're lucky here, we might be able to sneak some men past the Spanish and fall on them unexpectedly from behind. Quote, I told them that, for my part, I could not see what else we could do But go cross those woods, precipices, mountains, and rocks, how unaccessible soever they appeared to be, and endeavor to surprise the enemy in the rear, and to gain the advantage of ground from them by getting above them, where surely we were not expected, and that I would answer for the success of the same at the peril of my life if they would undertake it which speaks to the character of Luzon both in the sense of, you know, moral righteousness, Calvin's dad telling him that shoveling the walkway builds character, but also in the characterization of Revno de Luzon. Whether or not it's true, it's a compelling image of him before the rest of his French compatriots telling them that there is a chance, if only they have the courage to grasp it, to sneak through those dark and dangerous woods, to fall upon the Spanish from behind, and he claiming that he will go himself, at the peril of his own life, if the men would agree to do so. However, before any of that could begin, the pirates had to deal with their dead weight. They had a ton of horses, they had a bunch of prisoners, and then they had all of those freed slaves that didn't have any guns. First, they sent the prisoners away, back to town, theoretically, although really into the waiting arms of a Spanish army. More important, though, were the freedmen, who were unarmed. They gave them pistols and swords, and set those former slaves to guarding the horses. There were a few pirates among them, mostly Englishmen, or at least those who spoke enough English to give orders to the freedmen, including George Dew. And with that, everyone appeared to be ready to settle down for the evening. The Spanish probably assumed that that's what the pirates were doing, which... In a way it was, but it was a tense night for the pirates. A few pirates, their best scouts, those who had excellent eyesight, slipped into the trees as silently as possible to scout out a path. They had to navigate only by the scant amount of moonlight that filtered through the trees, and in doing so they had to be very, very quiet to avoid being detected by the Spanish. And make no mistake— the Spanish were watching the trees. If they heard voices, or a suspicious amount of activity, they would investigate. Now, this might be a bit more personal information than you'd care for, but I was reminded of something while reading about this. I once stalked a girlfriend of mine through the woods. It was, you know, on a camping trip. It's not as creepy as I made that sound. But I did so at night, and it was kind of scary. I mean, bears are a thing, possums are a thing, and I hate possums. It was really hard to find her, and she wanted me to find her. But that wasn't even the hardest part. The hardest part was once I figured out where she was, sneaking around her so that I could sneak up on her from behind, quietly enough to actually surprise her, which was the goal. And at the end of all of that, I did not have a reasonable expectation of having hot lead tear through my flesh, leaving me to bleed out until one of those bears, or maybe a family of possums, shows up to finish the job. I mean, I can only imagine the sort of tension that was coursing through the veins of the pirates, the fear and adrenaline and the sound of blood pumping in their ears. This was the moment, and these scouts were the men on which their success and return home, or their failure and certain death relied. But Luzon was among those who made their way through the woods, and eventually they had good news. Quote, Scarce had we considered the ascent where the Spaniards had made their retrenchments, but above them we saw a road, which we could not discover but with difficulty, and by lights peeping between the trees which would allow us to see but some traces at a distance from one another." End quote. He's saying that through these dark dense and dangerous woods there was a road above the spanish that if the pirates were able to reach would give them an excellent vantage on the spanish from the rear so the pirates began sending troops "Luson continues quote, "We sent 20 men to cover another party whom we knew by experience to be ingenious and expert upon several occasions, that so they might pitch upon those places by which we might, in the night, the more easily get up as far as that road, thereby to go and charge the enemy in the rear by break of day. End quote. is saying that they sent scouts ahead aside from one man who was to report, so that they could guide and guard more and more troops as they passed through the woods in the evening. They traveled in parties of about 20 men, quickly and quietly. And I do wonder how they hid their diminishing numbers, but apparently the Spanish didn't suspect a thing. After a long night of trying to sneak pirates through the woods, they were split up into three main bodies. There were those that were guarding the horses in the far rear, And that was not a safe position. The Spanish had 300 soldiers behind the main body of pirates, what Luzon calls, quote, our constant shadow. Those were 300 men menacing the 80 or so untrained slaves with only a few experienced pirates to back them up. And I don't intend to sully the bravery or the valor of those former slaves. They're about to prove they have both in truly spectacular fashion, But slave masters were rarely inclined to train their property to kill people. Never a good idea in their position. And then there was the main body of pirates, about 200 or so strong. They were waiting before the Spanish entrenchment. But then finally there were about 120 crack shots that were moving into place above and behind the Spanish. Their best and brightest, you might say. Luzon describes their movements, Things being thus disposed, we set our prayers as low as we could, that the Spaniards might not hear us. At the same time we set forward by moonlight. We heard the Spaniards also at their prayers, who fired six hundred muskets into the air to frighten us. They also discharged at the responses of the litany of the saints which they sung. We still pursued our march and spent the whole night to advance the distance between them and us through a country so full of rocks mountains and frightful precipices that our posteriors were of more use to us than our legs as dawn broke the pirates were almost in position happily though despite the sun being up they still had that heavy fog to hide their movements which put the Spanish at a big disadvantage See, the Spanish didn't know that anyone was up there, so they talked and rummaged around like normal. That made noise, that gave the pirates every opportunity to get into position. The pirates knew where the Spanish were, while the Spanish didn't know where the pirates were. But, one group of five or six pirates happened upon a pair of Spanish sentinels in the fog. They were standing very quietly and difficult to see until you were right up on them. Everyone was surprised, the sentinels, the pirates, and everyone fired. The game was up. The Spanish knew something was up there. Something had fired off their guns, and they got in place to do battle. But there was confusion in the Spanish camp. The shots came from above, but there were echoes in the valley, and the fog muffled noise. Arguments broke out among the Spanish. They're above us. No, they're below us. In fact, they were both. But the Spanish broke their ranks of 500 to face both up and downhill. And that's exactly what they should have done in this situation. But a volley came at them, not from above, but from below. From the pirates waiting below them. So all of the Spanish turned to face that direction. And that's exactly what they should not have done. Luzon says, quote, the Spaniards, who thought of nothing less than to see us come down from above upon their retrenchment, about five hundred men, consequently open without any cover, took the alarm so hot that falling all upon them at the same time, we made them quit the place in a moment and make their escape by the favor of the fog. This unexpected morning music disturbed the economy of their designs, and so thwarted their whole contrivance. End when the Spanish turned to face downhill, the pirates above fell on them and fired on them. The Spanish, having been hit so hard and so fast, broke ranks and ran. They abandoned their highest entrenchment, which allowed the pirates to capture it, which gave them ample opportunity to fire on the Spanish. It put the Spanish in the very same disadvantage that the pirates had been in only a few hours before. The pirates, now in place, opened fire, and kept up fire for an hour, but they had to do so through the fog that was still there. After that hour was up, the Spanish were still in place. They had not moved. It appeared that their muskets were unable to reach the Spanish, or at least do so with any hope of hitting them. So instead, the pirates drew their cutlasses and their pistols and advanced downhill through the fog. Quietly, as quietly as possible, so to go unnoticed, until they were right on the second barricade. The pirates rushed forward, slashing at any one in their way. The front ranks fell. When they engaged, pistols were discharged and dropped, just like the Spanish. Men were screaming and dying. Quote, We fought them stoutly, and they did not quit the place till such time as they saw the butts of our muskets. But then, being much terrified, they left us all and ran that way which was before their retrenchments. End quote. The Spanish broken ran again. Only this time they ran right into a barricade of fallen trees that they had put in place on the road to stop the pirates from advancing. That stopped them from continuing their retreat. That allowed the pirates above to fire on them while simultaneously. Those below had a clear shot. Luzon writes, quote, Thus the precaution which they had taken against us was turned upon themselves, insomuch that we had so clear a view of them from the retrenchments we had taken that we did execution almost with every piece we shot. End quote. They did execution with every piece they shot. The Spanish were caught in a crossfire, and they were being slaughtered. Within the hour, they broke and ran into the trees, or into the hills, or down the cliffside, anywhere that hot iron was not flying through the air. This was their final flight. They had lost the battle. And it was a brutal fight, even by pirate standards. Even those pirates with the darkest reputations were still products of their times. Usually, they fought with well, I was going to say honor, but honor isn't the right word, they at least followed some of the rules of engagement. When quarter was asked, it was given, usually. Quote, we found these Spaniards had so little mind to give us quarter that even when we took any of them, they would not as much as ask it at our hands, though they did all they could to save themselves out of our hands. At this, no man ought to wonder, for it's a maxim amongst them in these parts, whether it proceed from pride or fierceness of temper, that they will never ask quarter of those to whom they would give none. But we, in the meantime, being affected with compassion, upon sight of the great quantity of blood we saw running down into the rivulet, spared the rest, and went a second time into our entrenchments, having lost all this while but one man, and only two wounded. End quote. What he's saying there is that the pirates attempted to take prisoners, but the Spanish refused to accept quarter or ask it. So anywhere that the pirates came upon, a Spaniard or a small group of them, they killed them. Eventually, in sympathy at the large, large number of Spanish left dead on the field, the pirates pulled back and allowed the Spanish to flee. With the battle over and the Spanish broken, We might assume that the pirates had clear sailing ahead of them, all the way to the coast. However, the battles were not yet done, and there were still leagues and leagues ahead of them that were filled with warring Native American tribes. Next time, we'll bring an end to the journey of these pirates through Nicaragua to reach the Caribbean Sea. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has left us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. And everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, online or in real life. You all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can find us at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.